This is a Vault Studios production. I'm Reed Redmond. I'm Will Johnson. The show contains graphic material and is meant for mature audiences. This week on True Crime Chronicles. Her picture and her identifying information was one of the first to be on the milk cartons that were put out in all of the schools nationwide by the National Child Safety Council. We were, we have been consigned to the fact that we probably never would know what happened to her. They have really screwed up my life by taking all of that stuff. I don't think they're gonna find anything, but I think they're gonna leave this shadow of this appearance of evil with me. It's December 20th, 1984. The Franklin Middle School Choir is performing a holiday concert at the Interwest Bank in Greeley, Colorado, north of Denver near Fort Collins. The video you're hearing of this concert is the last known footage of 12-year-old Jonelle Matthews. She's standing in the back row, dressed up for the concert, smiling and singing in front of a tree decorated with ornaments and tinsel. On December 20th, 1984, Janelle Matthews attended a church, uh, excuse me, a school um, choir concert about a block and a half from where we stand right now. She was driven home to her West Greeley home by her uh, family friend, walked into her house, and that was the last time she was seen alive. By the time her father arrived home an hour later, Janelle was missing. Jonelle's shoes were left behind. The front door was open and the TV was on. But Jonelle herself was gone. And whoever took her left little to no evidence behind, save for one detail that investigators wouldn't release to the public. There were a few footprints discovered in the snow outside the home, which by the time Jonelle's father got there had been obscured, apparently by a garden rake. Immediately after Jonelle's disappearance, police and volunteers scoured every corner of Greeley and surrounding Weld County looking for her. Jonelle's name and face seemed to be everywhere, soon not just in Colorado, but all over the country. President Ronald Reagan mentioned Janelle by name in a speech in 1985. Her picture and her identifying information was one of the first to be on the milk cartons that were put out in all of the schools nationwide by the National Child Safety Council. Numerous searches were conducted in Northern Colorado. Nothing from those searches ever led to any answers about Janelle's disappearance. Years would go by without answers, without any sign of Janelle. I was very emotional, you know, and um, having somebody call Janelle, having a dog call Janelle, and um, and the dog is beautiful and <laughs> really pretty, and... and um, I just have, I feel a lot of gratitude that um, missing children are not forgotten. This is Janelle's mother, Gloria Matthews, speaking with Denver News Station KUSA in the days leading up to the 10-year anniversary of her daughter's disappearance. Janelle Matthews is not forgotten 10 years after she disappeared. Police and volunteers scoured every corner of Weld County looking for her. Just a few days before Christmas 1984, Janelle was dropped off at home after a choir concert. When her parents returned an hour later, 
Janelle was gone. Her shoes were left behind. The front door was open. The TV was on. No good clues or solid leads have ever been found in the case. Both police and her family are convinced Janelle was kidnapped and murdered. Next Tuesday, the Matthews family will gather with friends in Greeley for a church service to remember Janelle and to say goodbye. But we've never said goodbye to her, and it's just kind of putting a closure on it because most likely she's, um, she is dead. And um, you might, you know, our hearts are torn in wanting um, to put a closure on it and, and um, yet keeping a hope. And somehow or other, this hope, I think Tuesday night will kind of be buried. You know, this thread of hope will, um, will bury that hope, I think. After 10 long years, the Matthews family had decided to declare Jonelle legally dead. And days after this interview, in 1994, held a memorial service for her. At the Sunnyview Church of the Nazarene, friends of Jim and Gloria Matthews come together to say goodbye to Jonelle. They pray together and watch slides of Jonelle, pictures that end at age 12, when Jonelle vanished from her family's home. And if I would say one thing to you, Jim and Gloria, it's what you already know. You had 12 years of light. And she changed your life. She changed everyone she touched. It was difficult for the Matthews to sit through this service, but it was something they felt they had to do. It's something we feel that we'd like to, like to try to put some closure to, uh, and we realize that we haven't, haven't got complete finality here because we don't have a body or proof of something but we would still, we still want to go through and, and commit Janelle to, to the Lord and, and uh, just say goodbye to her. This service was for the community as much as for the family, the people of Greeley who have supported the Matthews through this long, agonizing ordeal. I think it's, it's really important for our friends also, um, for the town of Greeley, um, to say goodbye to Janelle, you know, for her friends. So with prayers and tears and hugs, the Matthews family and the people of Greeley put to rest the mystery of Janelle Matthews and said a long-delayed farewell. More than two decades later, in July of 2019, there would be an unexpected break in the Janelle Matthews case. Greeley police say they found the skull belonging to a missing 12-year-old at an oil and gas site in Weld County. And they also found some of the clothes that she was wearing on the day that she went missing, which was 34 years ago. The discovery helped them quickly identify the remains of Janelle Matthews, who was last seen in December of 1984. Construction workers discovered Janelle's remains in a Weld County field. She was dressed in the same clothes that she was wearing in 1984 at that bank building just down the street. An autopsy was conducted, and the cause of death was determined by a forensic uh, examiner to be a single gunshot wound to her forehead. The discovery had been made by a crew excavating an oil and gas well in rural Weld County, Colorado, where Greeley is located. Of course it was a real shock um, when we first heard it, and um, we've been numb for all of these days. and. But I think being here would be a really uh, would be really good for us um, to go through all of it. And but we're so grateful that that God has just revealed this to us. So 34 years after they last saw their daughter, Jonelle's parents received a phone call 
they say they never thought they would receive, one that immediately brought them back to Colorado from Costa Rica, where they were living in 2019. Well, uh, the detective, Robert Cash, um, called us Wednesday night, and um, he shared what he could share. So, and um, we both were just really surprised and shocked. Totally caught, totally caught off guard, yeah. It was just a, we were, we have been consigned to the fact that we probably never would know what happened to her. And this is just an absolute miracle about how she was found. This must be a phone call you've waited for for so long and thought through and dreamed of having. Well, like I say, we, you know, after this amount of years, we just have been consigned to the fact that we probably never will find out what happened to her. And to have it all of a sudden, 34 and a half years later, find these remains in the middle of nowhere. This crew just digging, and if they had dug up, you know, 15, 20 feet to one side or the other, they never would have found her. So we really believe that God has provided a miracle for this to happen. You are Janelle's sister, right? I am, yes. Janelle's sister, Jennifer Mogensen, also had mixed emotions about the news. It was, it's surreal, it still kind of is. Um, it's closure for me and my family, but it also raises new questions now. And it's... It's sad, too. We're sad, my parents and I, so. In the sense of closure, how does it help you heal? Well, I think because we never had a body, um, and at her 10-year anniversary, we kind of put as much closure as we could. But until you have a body, uh, um, you know, there's still just some unknowns. And now... We know that um, she is dead for sure, and we can go on from there. Had you ever held out hope? Probably, I don't want to say minuscule, but until you know, there's just there's just a little bit. It's been 34 years. Um, that's a long time to not know what happened to your sister, right? Exactly. And although we still have other questions now because we still don't fully know, at least uh, we know that um, other options that can kind of run through your head as far as still being alive, uh, we can put those to rest. Having already held a funeral service in 1994, Jonelle's family held a closure celebration in Greeley to finally put Jonelle's remains to rest. How do you say goodbye? when there are still so many questions. Closure comes in many forms. This family of the Greeley, the community, just rallied to us. 34 years after the 12-year-old disappeared, the discovery of Janelle Matthews' remains bring our family comfort and a sense of peace in the midst of a nightmare that's lasted for so long. Sometimes you don't, you never experience this love and the prayers, but that was, that was what sustained us. This story ends the same way many of Janelle's nights did when she was still alive. We would sing to her at night, her lullaby. One final song, sang by her parents. And this is her lullaby. To put her to rest. Although the discovery of Janelle's remains offered her family members a sense of closure, the question of who killed Jonelle was still unanswered. 
but we would soon learn that investigators had identified a person of interest in the case. My name is Steve, S-T-E-V-E, Pankey, Pearson Paul, A-N-K-E-Y. Steve Pankey, a resident of Twin Falls, Idaho, and two-time former candidate for Idaho governor, told Boise local news station KTVB that he was under investigation for the death of Jonelle Matthews. The 68-year-old, who lived in Greeley when Jonelle went missing, sat down for an extended interview outside his condo, in which he talked about the case and denied any involvement, starting with his whereabouts the week Jonelle disappeared. On December 20th, 1984, uh, I was home with my then wife and my five-year-old son. And uh, uh, we were, uh, our car was parked in the driveway. We lived on an acre just outside of town. The car was parked in the driveway. It was packed to the max to go to California, Big Bear Lake, California, for Christmas to visit my folks. Uh, We were going to bed early. We put the little boy to bed early. We were going to bed early. We had no radios, no TVs on. Uh, I looked out the kitchen window, the front window, to see, uh, like, snowfall to make sure that our two-year-old drive car could get out early the next morning. We're going to leave six, seven, eight hours later. And um, uh, a an unmarked sheriff's car in a pickup pulled into the driveway, turned around, and left. I had had... Uh, I have a gay background. It's all over the Internet. It's well-known. And uh, uh, I had had multiple problems with uh, local law enforcement. And so I was thinking, oh, no, here's coming another arbitrary charge. Um, So they just, they flashed their lights towards my house and towards the house next to me. And then they just turned around and left. So I thought nothing more about it. We went to bed. Uh, We got up three or four the next morning, uh, got the little boy up, uh, got in the car. Uh, my, my wife and son were sleeping as I was driving, so there was no radio on. We went to California, had a wonderful Christmas with my parents. On December 26, 1984, uh, six days later, we were returning, and when we got back into, uh, in the evening time in, in Colorado, uh, we heard on the news that a missing there was a missing girl uh, then. That was my first knowledge of it. Panky says he returned home to Greeley and the next day received an unannounced visit from his estranged father-in-law. He was groundskeeper at uh, the cemetery and uh, he said that a cop had come to him and said that he had a body that needed to be buried in a casket and that uh, uh, it would look bad for Steve. And when I'm listening to this, I'm thinking this is kind of like the weirdest conversation I've ever had. So I asked him, I said, are you wearing a wire for the police department? You know, what's going on here? And he said, no. And he left. So then I called my attorney. His name is Don Janklow, the attorney I had at the time. 
and Cy uh, C.Y. was his secretary, and she said, Don's out of the country in Israel. So he would be back the next week. So I searched all around our acre, around the neighbor's acre, where the cops had flashed the lights like a week before. Um, and there was nothing there, you know. So I was kind of weirded out about this. Now, my father-in-law never said the name Janelle Matthews. He never said anything about a child. He never said anything about a man, a woman, anybody. Um, I got a copy of the newspaper and the Janelle Matthews thing was all over it. It was the only murder in the area that was at the time or, or disappearance at the time that was talked about. Pinky says he tried to provide this information first to an attorney, then to an FBI agent. He identifies as Special Agent Lyons. I talked to my attorney. Somebody had talked to me about a body. They never mentioned the name Janelle Matthews. They never mentioned any name. But I thought the conversation was weird, and I don't totally trust the person that said it. And I said on sleeping on it, thinking about it, if they come to me again, I will refer them to you and you can deal directly with them. According to Panky, they had a few questions for him, but he didn't really have much more information to give. And I left and that was the end of it. That's the total of my knowledge about the disappearance of Janelle Matthews, okay? That's it. There ain't nothing more. Pinky then talks about the investigation into him and about his own suspicions about the case. I used to be youth pastor at Sunnyview Church of the Nazarene where the Matthews family went. So I knew their trusted adults. Uh, my then five-year-old, I didn't want him there from some of the things that I knew about them. So, um, I I have all along, I've had suspicions. Now, suspicions aren't facts. It's just suspicion. My suspicion is that there was a confrontation with a trusted adult. It ended in injury, death, whatever. And I think under the circumstances, because there were some close relationships between the police, there was a city worker going to the church and all, uh, that there was some uh, I don't know. The reporter conducting the interview follows up on that connection to the Matthews family, Panky's time as a youth pastor, and the conversation takes a bizarre turn. I don't know them. You said at the time you were a youth minister at that um, church right. uh, where they did go. Uh, right. Was um, Janelle in your um, group that you no, ministered? No, no, okay. no. In 1977, now you have to keep in mind that I had left the gay lifestyle when I got kicked out of the army in uh, 1976. And so then I became, I repented for that, and I became the youth pastor. Uh, 
a girl, I was 26, a 23-year-old woman in the church who was single. Her and I were dating. Uh, she was in the choir. She played the piano. We were having sex together. She got pregnant. She went to England and had an abortion. And uh, she came back like a month later and uh, or six weeks later. And she and I had sex again. And uh, I told her I was going to tell the church that she got an abortion, you know, without asking me. And uh, the next thing, I was uh, arrested for date rape. And uh, that was dismissed, okay. Because, I mean, frankly, it was consensual. Mm -hmm. so, so that was 1977. So when you're a youth pastor and you get accused of date rape, I'll tell you, you're no longer a youth pastor and you're not wanted in that church. <laughs> so I was out of there. <laughs> It, it was according to online information given by Jim Matthews, the father, or the stepfather. He said they started going there in 1978, so they were a year after me. I have never met any of the Matthews family, never talked to them. So, Panky goes on to talk about his history with the law, saying he's been charged with somewhere around 20 misdemeanors. Then they get back to where they left off, talking about the Jonelle Matthews case. And so you went and talked with the FBI in Fort Collins. Uh, no, the Fort Collins came to the Greeley Police Department. Came to the Greeley Police Department. You talked with the Special Agent Lyons, told them your story, told them what you knew. Um, and then Which was very little. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and then after that, when was the next time you heard about this case where you were brought in again by law enforcement? Um... When I, uh, in 1989, we moved, I was married at the time, we moved to uh, uh, Ketchum, Idaho, and then Shoshone, Idaho. And uh, in Shoshone, I joined the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, I had a rocky marriage, and when they were talking about families live forever, it sounded really good to me. And um, uh, when I got the ordination and was baptized and all of that, the uh, bishop asked me if there was anything I wanted to confess, if there was anything like bothering me that I needed to get off my chest. And I said, yeah, uh, back when I lived in Colorado, this girl disappeared and I had this weird conversation about it and it bothered me and so um, anyway the bishop then told the stake president which is in Cary and, they, and there was a, uh, a lieutenant with the Sun Valley Police Department who was also in the Cary stake thing so the stake president the then stake president contacted me this would have been 92, 93, I'm guessing right in there, uh, and said, you know, if you've had a conversation with somebody about a missing person, you know, we'd like for you to talk to uh, Lieutenant Mark Lockwood. So I talked to him and I told him 
you know, that I was concerned. And um, what, what I said is I had this conversation and it was weird. And every now and then, like, I'd call somebody in Greeley and check because when I left Agent Lyons, I thought, you know, because I slept really good because I thought, you know, if this was kids that did this to another kid, kids crack real easy and and this was going to be solved. And it just bothered me that it wasn't solved. And so I talked to him and... uh, he got a hold of the uh, Greeley Police Department, got the whole file on it, and he had like this huge file thing the next time he talked to me. And then it went from, it was either, his attitude was, is either, either I'm crazy and I'm wanting attention and I made up the whole thing, or... I did it. And I'm, what are you talking about? You know, I had a conversation. That's it. Fast forward again to 2019, April, when Panky says Greeley police contacted his family members and eventually asked if they could come to Idaho to interview him. I said, you know, uh, without a a lawyer present, I'm not, you know, you guys charged me with date rape. You charged me with 20 misdemeanors. You're scary people. I, you, I have a homosexual background, I admit it, okay. I'm not gonna talk to you without an attorney present. So uh, he, he, had, he then called my attorney and they did some back and forth and my attorney said, you know, we're gonna have some ground rules here and all that stuff. And they didn't, and Greeley Police Department wouldn't go along with that. It's then in August that Panky says Greeley Police Detectives showed up at his front door and he turned them away. Later that month, he says he gave that DNA sample and thought he could put all this behind him. That didn't end up being the case. Then on September 4th, uh, about 9.30 in the morning, I get a call from Dobner, and he said, he said, when you gave me your DNA, there was some paperwork I should have done that I didn't do. And I said, what? And so I said to him, do you have an ulterior motive here? What's going on, you know? And he said, he said, no, I need you to come down and be down here by 10 o'clock. And this is 9.30. Be down here by 10 o'clock and just do the paperwork. So I said again, do you have an ulterior motive? And his voice went up again, kind of a second time when he said no, you know? So I said, well, I'm gonna shave and shower. I'll be there between 10.30 and 11. So uh, I shaved, showered, and uh, called my attorney when I was leaving and was heading that way. And my attorney said, don't go to their office, come to my office. And if Dobner has paperwork for you to do, let him do it at at my office. So I pull in to uh, my attorney's office and two unmarked uh, minivans pull in and cops come out with uh, full SWAT team rifles and all this stuff and they're standing there pointing at me. At this point in the interview, Panky stands up to reenact what happened from his perspective. And so I was standing right by my car door 
I just want to show you. So I'm just standing there and I'm looking at them because, I mean, this was total shock and awe, okay? <laughs> I mean, if they wanted to catch me off guard, they succeeded. <laughs> so I'm standing there and the cop says, do you have any guns on you? And I said, no. So uh, he said, can we search you? So I turn around and I said, sure. He searches me, nothing there. He asks for my cell phone, I give him my cell phone. He asks for my car keys, I give him my car keys. Then he hands me a, a warrant, a warrant for my phones and my computer and all. And then uh, that he's got a search warrant he gave me. He gave me two pieces of paper. And uh, so I gave him codes to get into my place and they searched it. Before this interview wraps up, Panky addresses why he's been so proactive in reaching out to media outlets. Why he took an interview like this one in the first place. When a SWAT team goes in and searches somebody's house, eventually it ends up in the news media, okay? And there's two, there's two issues that go on. There's a court battle, but there's a public perception battle. So you, you hear these people all the time, their place has been searched, the police say, well, they're a person of interest, they're a suspect, they're this or that. And the police say no, or the, the, the suspect, the person of interest says no comment, no nothing, you know, won't talk to you. They look guilty, okay? So I think, I think if I simply state the truth in, I didn't know she existed or disappeared until six days after the fact. Once that's established, okay, I had this short conversation. Now, if, you know, I, I would like to have my name cleared, yeah. They've got all of this stuff. They have really screwed up my life by taking all of that stuff. I don't think they're going to find anything. But I think they're going to leave this shadow of this appearance of evil with me. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. One month later, on October 13th, 2019, officials hold a press conference in Greeley to announce an update in the Jonelle Matthews case. The Janelle Matthews uh, homicide investigation was referred to the 19th Judicial um, Statutory Grand Jury for their consideration in August of this year. It is with great honor today that we announce that the grand jury indicted an individual named Stephen Dana Pankey for the kidnapping and murder of Janelle Matthews. Specifically, the grand jury indictment charges one count of murder in the first degree after deliberation, one count of murder in the first degree felony murder, one count of second degree kidnapping, and two sentence enhancing crime of violence counts. Officers from the Meridian, Idaho Police Department, along with Detectives Cash and Prill, arrested Mr. Pankey yesterday at his home in Meridian, Idaho. He's currently being held without bond in the Ada County, Idaho jail, where he will await extradition back to the state of Colorado to face these charges. Today's press conference is 36 years in the making. For over three decades, the disappearance of Janelle Matthews 
has left our community with many unanswered questions and a void that has not been filled. With the arrest of Steve Pankey for the murder of Janelle Matthews, some of these questions are starting to be answered. I trust this new development helps the Matthews family, their friends, and our community to receive some closure and healing from this horrific crime. The indictment points to some specific pieces of evidence investigators say implicate Steve Pankey in the murder of Jonelle Matthews. You'll see such things as um, the Matthews family frequented the same church. Um, there was a little bit of overlap um, between the family and, and the defendant in 1978. Um, there are a number of statements that he has made over the course of time, uh, both to courts, to law enforcement, to in unsolicited letters in which he indicates some very intimate knowledge about um, the commission of the crime, information that uh, the general public and the media was not privy to, um, indicating that he had a, an involvement in this um, uh, offense. I think that's the best way that I can answer it at this point. The indictment also mentions Panky filed pleadings in a number of civil and criminal cases that contained both direct and veiled statements about Jonelle Matthews. One section of the indictment reads, quote, in a 1999 pleading filed with the Idaho Supreme Court, Stephen Dana Pankey argued, if the court ruled in a certain fashion, it's reasonable for the appellant to believe he would get the death penalty for revealing the location of Jonelle Matthews' body. Stephen Dana Pankey repeatedly demanded immunity in exchange for information he claimed to possess about the murder of Jonelle Matthews. Stephen Dana Pankey asserted in an April 2003 pro se court pleading, the family should be informed that Jonelle died before crossing 10th Street and not to give the family hope, end quote. The indictment goes on to talk about an alibi document. It says Panky sent to law enforcement in 2013, detailing plans for a family trip to California the day after Jonelle Matthews went missing. The indictment says the document contained false statements and superfluous details, then cites statements from his ex-wife, reading, quote, Angela Hicks described the family trip commencing two days after Jonelle Matthews' disappearance as unexpected. She described that Stephen Dana Panky dumped their family dogs prior to this trip and they were never seen again. On the drive home, she stated he uncharacteristically listened to the radio, searching for news accounts of Jonelle's disappearance. Upon arriving back in Greeley, Stephen Dana Pankey forced her to read the newspaper accounts about Jonelle to him. Angela Hicks stated when they finally arrived home on December 26, 1984, he began digging in their yard, and approximately two days later, a car on their property burst into flames, which Stephen Dana Pankey then disposed of at a local salvage yard. End quote. A lot of the statements that you'll see made reference to in the indictment are more recent than 1984. Um, a lot of the statements were made in the 2000s and the, the 2010 decade. Um, it's really a matter of these detectives taking all of that information, putting it together, and, and really doing the, the follow-up investigation that needed to be done, um, re-interviewing witnesses as necessary. Um, the, the discovery of Janelle's remains were significant in the course of this investigation, obviously, but also in um, leading us in part back to a, a suspect um, based on, again, some information that you'll see in that in the indictment. There are a number of other seemingly difficult to explain statements outlined in the indictment, but perhaps the most difficult to explain is an allegation related to the footprints discovered outside the Matthews home on the night she went missing, a detail that had never been made public. The indictment states, quote, Stephen Dana Pankey knew of and discussed a crucial piece of evidence from the Matthews house withheld from the public by law enforcement. Specifically, a rake was used to obliterate shoe impressions in the snow. 
end quote. After 35 years, a grieving family in Greeley is hoping to finally see justice. Janelle Matthews was just 12 years old when she went missing, and now Steve Pankey is under arrest for her murder. Steve Pankey, through his attorney, still insists he had nothing to do with it. Pankey's attorney, Anthony Vior, says, as he recalls, his client didn't know the family or the 12-year-old girl. And the fact that it's taken this long to make an arrest reflects a lack of proof from investigators. My reaction is I'm actually surprised at the fact that they indicted him on on these charges. Uh, I'm really aware of zero evidence that connects him to this crime. Jonelle Matthews' family has shared their reaction to this news with KUSA in Denver. And what you're looking at at your screen right now is a statement from Janelle's sister, Jennifer Mogensen. She told Nine News, although it's bittersweet, it's exciting and just the first step to a long road toward justice. She says, we know it will take a while, but this is an exciting first step. Barring any delays, Steve Pankey's jury trial is set to begin this week on October 6th and is expected to last four and a half weeks. For True Crime Chronicles, I'm Will Johnson, along with Reed Redmond. Reed, I know we've had this interview uh, and, and have been wanting to cover this case. Uh, I, I had not previously, I, I have to confess, listened to much of this interview. It really is wide-ranging. He brings up a lot of things on his own. Uh, and, and it's just, it, I mean, as tragic as this case is, it's fascinating to hear him deciding to make this interview happen in the first place. Yeah, it's really rare to learn that somebody is a person of interest in a case from the person of interest themselves. Uh, but that that's what happened here. And we heard Steve Pankey's explanation for why he wanted to get his side of the story, as he calls it, out there, why he wanted to go to the press before you know news got out that he was being investigated. Um, the, the interview itself is, I mean, we heard a lot of it. It's, it's interesting and, and parts of it are kind of hard to make sense of what what he's actually saying, why he's bringing up certain things, but um, there is a little bit more to it if anyone's interested in watching the full interview. It's 51 minutes long. You can find it at the KTVB YouTube page. This case also has this element that you see and hear about in real life, certainly in TV and movies, but where a police department holds back on some information and making that public because they know uh, maybe you know they'll catch up with someone who has this information and there's no way they could have heard it somewhere else. Yeah, that's one of the things we often hear from investigators is that there's bits of information they want to keep private in the hopes that it'll someday help to identify a suspect. And that's what prosecutors are saying here, that the public didn't know about these raked over footprints outside the Matthews home. So how would Steve Pankey have learned that detail? And that's something that I expect will no doubt come up at trial. And it'll be interesting to hear what his defense has to say about that. Steve Pankey was a candidate for governor. I believe you said Twice, if I if I'm correct, uh, did he stand a real chance at that? Did he have supporters? What, what's that all about? Yeah, when I heard that he was a gubernatorial candidate, I was kind of curious if that meant that this was somebody who had a significant public profile in Idaho. What I found is that he ran, as you mentioned, for governor of Idaho twice. And according to Ballotpedia, the first time around, he ran as a member of the Constitution Party in 2014 and in the general election received 1.2% of the vote. And then he tried to run in the Republican primary leading up to the 2018 election there, and he got 1.4% of the vote in that primary, uh, so didn't make it to the general. So 
so yeah, he ran for governor twice, but uh, he, he, he wasn't close to actually becoming the governor of Idaho. Reed, we will know soon about Steve Pankey's fate. Uh, the trial is just getting underway in the next few days, right? Yeah, as things stand, the trial is supposed to start Wednesday of, of this week, the week we're putting this out. That's October 6th. Uh, there have been a couple recent hearings leading up to the trial where, according to a paper in Greeley, the Greeley Tribune, Steve Pankey's attorney has filed motions related to some evidence that the prosecution plans to use. Uh, one motion involved an incident that came up in a pretrial witness interview, and it involves a falling out between Pankey and his ex-wife and his father-in-law, where I guess that it was a pretty rocky falling out, and Pankey's attorney argued that talking about that might prejudice the jury. Essentially, the judge said, you know, if you think that's a problem, then object to it at trial. We'll, we'll rule on it then. Another interesting motion involved the operator of a salvage yard where Steve Pankey disposed of a vehicle at some point. And, and I guess, again, during a pretrial interview, he described Pankey as creepy, evil, and angry. The prosecutor said that that's not a character judgment, but rather an explanation about why specifically he remembered Panky. And then again, in that instance, the judge said, you know, we'll cross that bridge when we get to it at trial. So there's a few other motions like that, but at the end of the day, trial set to start Wednesday and those things will be dealt with as they come up. Reed, there's also some fundraising going on for the family of the victim, right? This is also reported in the Greeley Tribune. A resident of Greeley is raising money to finance the family's costs of actually staying there throughout the trial. They all live out of state now, and they say that the money provided by the court doesn't quite cover the costs of being in Greeley for the duration of the trial. Uh, the article mentioned two ways people can donate. One is to send money on Venmo to at justice for Jonelle, at J-U-S-T-I-C-E, number four, J-O-N-E-L-L-E. And another is to donate to the James Matthews Donation Fund at U.S. Bank. All right, Reed, let's let our listeners know uh, we have a uh a daily show if they haven't heard already, and also a new podcast called Strangeville, right? Yeah, the first season of Strangeville is just wrapping up. Uh, this week we'll have our eighth episode out. So there's eight full episodes you can go check out right now. And we do have a daily podcast called The Daily Crime. So if you uh, like what we're doing here and you, you want more of it, search for The Daily Crime wherever you're listening to True Crime Chronicles. All right, Reed, thanks for bringing us the case this week. We'll be back next week with a new case and a new story. <laughs>